Hey everyone, you're listening to A Walk Across Texas State. This is Bridget Sarbu. I'm joined by Tori Graham and Zachary Webb for an really incredible finale episode to the fall season for 2020. And we first want to thank you all for listening. And we're so excited uh, for you to join us next semester. But for our special guest and our really cool finale, we had Dr. Sherry Ben join us. She currently serves as Assistant Vice President for Institutional Inclusive Excellence for Student Initiatives for Texas State University. And her story is incredible. She has such positivity and energy, and we were so inspired by her, and we know you will be too. So, enjoy. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Ben. We're so sure. excited to get to know you and have a, have a good conversation, hopefully. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I guess I'll start us off by asking a kind of fun, silly question. Okay. And, um, that's, we read or heard that you like to bike. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us like what type of biking, (laughs) what type of bike do you have? I'm very interested. Okay. So um, I'm really just a novice at this. And um, I uh, started riding, of course, we all ride bikes as children, right? Sure. But um, so when my son was, I don't know, about nine and he wanted a new bike, we got him a bike. And so he said, well, you have to get a bike if I'm getting a bike because I can't ride by myself. And I said, well, you'll ride with your friends. And he said, no, mom, you have to get a bike too. So that's actually why I ended up buying a bike is just so that I can bike with my son. And so um, the bike that I bought wasn't, you know, it was just a, a little off-road bike. It was pretty cool. And, and I liked it because it, it was a pretty uh, sky blue. And mm-hmm. so um, that's actually what drew me to it. And because it had a basket in the front and a little bell. And I was it's like, so oh, fun. Is, right. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. So it was a lot of fun. So that's how I got interested in riding bikes post my childhood sure. is because my son, we, we went and bought him a bike and he insisted that I get a bike. So we would just ride, you know, through our neighborhood around the neighborhood. And then we started uh, riding on some trails. So like there's this 20 mile trail in San Antonio that sort of takes you around. Uh, yeah. Around the city. So, um, so one day he and I, and, and a girlfriend who, who we, we started biking together, we just find different places to go bike. And so that was like the first major kind of biking adventure we had was a 20 mile trail wow. um, a bike ride. In, uh, in San Antonio. And so, yeah, that's sort of my story about biking. <laughs> that's so cool. Oh my gosh. Well, biking is so fun. <laughs> it's such an easy way to get around and to see what's around. That's... And it's easy on your knees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, Tori is being, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of bashful. I don't know, because she is also, she is a cyclist technically. What? But... <laughs> Don't get carried away. Yes. Come on, come, on, come but, through now. Come through. Tell me about it. Yeah, because you, you've, I mean, I know you ride trails at my favorite. So I was a youth minister. I, there was a church camp in Round, uh, Rock Springs, Texas that I love. And Tori and her, her husband go there and bike. So it's yeah. like this like small world. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We do mountain biking more so, and he's a lot more extreme than I am. I, I'm more of a cross country 
mountain biker, but he does the more enduro downhill style. Um, but yeah, it used to, I've done a few different types. Mountain biking is kind of where I've landed and that's what I like doing now. But for a bit, I was training for a race in California. So I did a lot of road cycling and I burnt myself out way too much on road cycling. I like it for strolls, but I, I, I definitely can't do it for training anymore. <laughs> so. Wow. That's pretty cool. Look at you. Okay. Well, put me to shame here. I'm just, you know, <laughs> just no. riding some cheap blue bike with my no. kid. That's the, uh, that's what I'm doing. And look, look at her. I mean, right. She's into it. They're into extreme biking, mountain, right. Biking, all these really, um, no. cool kinds of biking and mine's no. just a regular old mom biking. Okay? No, I love it. <laughs> I know Point. the ones I desperately want one with a basket and a bell. I think they're so cute. <laughs> Aren't they so the comfy. cutest? Yeah. Yes, they are very comfortable and awesome. lots of fun. <laughs> well, I love that. And plus 20 miles is a, that's a big deal. It's a lot. Yeah. That, yeah, I haven't was, done that. It was pretty major when we set out to do it. We didn't know how major it was, right? Until we got through it and we we're like, what were we thinking? <laughs> it's so hard too, because you get to a point and, and you're just kind of stuck because you, if you turn back, you still have just as long you still to go. Have 10 miles to go. So, yeah, when you're halfway through, yeah. You're very committed. Uh-huh. I love that. All right. Well, thanks for sharing with us a bit about your lovely blue bike. I sure. love that. Um, so to get started, we wanted to talk about your career path because, you know, as we've done some research, we are just like, there's so much that you've done. Um, so we know that, that there have been events in your life that shaped your career path that yes. you ultimately took that led you here to Texas State. So can you tell us about those events and that path. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to do, because I always try to do this anytime I speak about myself, is I always first honor my ancestors. And, and that's really, really important to me because were it not for their determination and their tenacious will to live, I would not be here today. So I, I like to say that I'm a proud Black woman who is the descendant of Afro-Mexican immigrants and the descendant of enslaved Africans who were trafficked and dehumanized on breeding farms that we call plantations in order for this country to be built. And here's a little known fact. By the time enslaved Blacks were freed, trafficking and enslavement had become the single largest financial asset in the entire U.S. economy. The wealth from that dehumanization um, produced more millionaires per capita than any other enterprise at that time. And so that's something that people don't often know. So it's really important for me to always acknowledge my ancestry because um, I, I think it's really important for us to recognize that enslaved people, primarily of African descent, um, built this country with little to no recognition. And today we are all indebted to their labor. And so Asante Sana, that means thank you very much in Swahili. And so that is just a way that I honor those who came before me. And so I think it's really important that I do that. And so for me, everything is sort of connected, right? Mm. So my ancestry in, in, in to my career path. Mm-hmm. So that's all somewhat connected because, um, as I said, of course, the, the reason why I'm here is because other people just had the sheer will 
to um, continue uh, and ensure that I would be here because of their will and determination to live. And so um, I'm going to go back to my grandfather, um, <clears throat> one of my grandfathers on my mother's side of the family. So my grandfather, who was a World War II veteran, he was also the first African-American in the Oklahoma National Guard. He was the first African-American to run for school board in his town and to, to get a seat on the school board. He was the first black constable in his hometown, in, in the town he grew up, my mother grew up in. He was also um, the first black to run for mayor in that town. So he a lot of first. He was also the last circuit writer for his district in the AME church. And so um, my family has a history of service to the community and with regard to the work of justice and um, equality, equity, liberation work. And so that for me is a family tradition and that's part of our legacy. And that's the way we pay forward to those we cannot pay back. Mm -hmm. So I will say my early understanding of um, what it meant to have what I like to say is a calling on one's life is what I prefer to consider my career path or my career journey. It's a, it's a calling. And um, one of the things that my grandmother said was um, to my aunt. So my aunt, Judy, who, who is now deceased, she's my mother's youngest sister, but she was a chaplain. She was an AME chaplain. And, but I remember when my aunt, when she was younger, she would fuss at my grandparents and she would say, you know, there's all these drug addicts and these winos up on the corner, she would call them. And she said, and y'all supposed to be such good Christians, but y'all aren't doing anything about that, right? So she would tell this to my grandparents because my grandparents had two little country churches that they would go back and forth between, right? Every um, other Sunday, they would uh, alternate. And so my grandmother, who's a very reserved and sort of self-contained woman, she would tell my aunt, she would say, well, baby, it seems like if it's bothering you, it's something you need to do. And so one of the ways that I began to understand what it meant to sort of have a calling on your life is that it is to be compelled by something. And it's oftentimes something that bothers you or bugs you. And it seems like something needs to be done and, and something needs to get done about that thing. And so that was one of sort of my early understandings from my grandmother of what it meant to be compelled by something to the point of action. Mm. And so to me, a career path is essentially being compelled by something that you're passionate about and where you see in this Parker Palmer, he, he defines a calling or a vocation as this, where your great gladness meets one of the world's great needs, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, the thing that I was probably most compelled by were some of the things that I had observed my family doing and their involvement. Um, and also uh, my own involvement in integrating an elementary school. So when I was in second grade, I transitioned from, I transferred from, my mother had dropped out of college to get married and then we moved. And so when we moved, we moved from an all black neighborhood and then we moved to another neighborhood and a district where uh, it was an all white school and school district. So, so I'm gonna make this pretty short, but 
again, this is a, a thing that impressed and made an impression upon me, I should say, early on. So my mother would take me to school each day to this school. As soon as she would drop me off, I would leave and I would just go down the street. And they would call my mom and say, the principal would call my mom, where's Sherry's not at school? And she would say, well, what do you mean she's not at school? Because I dropped her off. And he would say, well, she's not here. So my mother would come back up to the school and find me about a block down from the school sitting on the curb crying. Mm -hmm. And she would say, okay, baby, you have to go back to school. And so we, this went on for you know several weeks where I would leave the school, she would come. And then finally she said, okay, look, mama can't keep leaving her job. So you've got a choice. You're going to be afraid of the belt or the kids. And I was like, oh God, the belt, the kids, the kids it is, right? So, <laughs> so, so um, she said, so you're just going to have to stay at school. Okay. And it was a very traumatic kind of event and situation for me because I felt very isolated. The kids weren't playing with me. They weren't talking to me. And they, in fact, they were calling me names and saying things probably children should not even know to say. Right. So, um, so then what happened is I started getting into fights because whenever somebody would start picking at me or saying things to me, pulling my hair. And of course my hair was different because it was a kinky, curly, little woolly lamb's wool. My mom used to say, you're a little soft baby lamb's wool hair. And so, um, uh, so I started getting into fights. Well, then of course, what happens? The principal starts calling my mom. Sherry's getting into fights. Sherry's gotten in another fight. And so finally, my mother told the principal, look, if you don't know how to take care of my baby, if you can't take care of my baby, then she has to learn how to take care of herself. And while that sounds like a very sort of a harsh reality for a seven-year-old and for my mother to have said, it was in fact sort of the true reality that my mother knew as um, a young black mother and with a black daughter, that would be sort of the reality that I would always be faced with is, um, especially in the space that I was in, that I would always have to learn, I would have to learn how to stand up for myself, to speak up for myself and to fight for myself. Um, and so, but what happened ultimately was a teacher, her name was Miss Shaw, of course, I'll never forget her. Her name was Miss Shaw. She was a young white female and, and she said, she went to the, my mother and the principal, she talked to them and she said, I'd like to put her in my class. And so mm -hmm. she did, that's what happened. She put me in her class. Did I know what, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how that was gonna change things, but it in fact changed everything mm -hmm. because what I didn't know at the time and I didn't have language for, of course, cause I was seven, was that my teacher was my ally. My teacher was my ally, right? So she was both my teacher and my ally. And so that is when I began to understand very early on what it meant for someone who had power. She had teacher power, right? Mm -hmm. She had teacher power, what it meant for her to use that as a way to be an ally to me. And, and the word ally comes from um, a Latin word that means to bind oneself to something. And so it's essentially to bind one's fate to another's fate right? If you want to think about allyship. And so that was my earliest understanding of what it would mean essentially to be a champion for others, to be an ally to others, an advocate to others, and the impact that that could have on another person's life if you used whatever 
power, authority, privilege, and, and we all have privileges, right? So, um, and, and just understanding what those are, how to use those on behalf of others to elevate their concerns and their voices and to tether yourself to their struggle and to their pain. And so that um, is what I believe my career path and my career journey has been about, is a has really been a calling for me to bind myself, right, to the struggles and to the fate um, and to the um, journeys of others. And particularly in my role in post-secondary education, and I use the term post-secondary rather than higher education, mm-hmm. higher ed- education presumes there's lower education, there's just education, there's no such thing as lower education or higher education, it's all education, whether it's something you get from home, in your community, in your spiritual community, with your student organization, with your friend group, doesn't matter, we get education in, in many ways. So, um So for me, my journey into post-secondary education um, was about me tethering myself and binding myself, right, to the fate of whom? Our students, because they're on a path, they're on a journey pursuing their calling. And they need allies to help them get through. Yes, (laughs) exactly, exactly. Thank goodness for Ms. Shaw. I'm glad that she was able to... (laughs) To really be that for you. Me too. Oh, man. Wow. Well, kind of speaking a little bit about these subjects that you have pursued yourself, uh, we know that you received your bachelor's degree in psychology and then a master's degree in educational administration. Can you tell us kind of what made you interested in those fields? And I, I know you already touched on that a little bit, but yeah, I guess okay. to keep going uh, to get that additional education? Sure. So psychology. um, So originally I had um, taken that class, of course, because everyone has to take that intro to psychology course because I didn't exactly know what I was going to major in, but I did know psychology was something I was interested in. And the reason I knew psychology was of interest to me is because my best friend in high school, her mother was working on her PhD in clinical psychology at Oklahoma Mm -hmm. State University. I grew up in Oklahoma. excuse me. And so that was just really intriguing to me, right? So um, she was studying psychology. And so I would ask her all these questions about psychology because I just found it really fascinating. And so when I took the course, um, that first intro to psychology class, it was so fascinating because it was a way to sort of unpack and uncover just the personal experiences that that individuals have, you know, throughout throughout the course of their lives. So it was to me, it was just really fascinating to understand human behavior, why we do certain things, why people are compelled by um, certain things, what influences them, what factors impact um, the way they experience life. And so that was just very fascinating to me. So the initial influence was a role model. And then when I took the course, I was just hooked. Um, because it was just so interesting and so fascinating. And then, of course, nothing is as compelling as trying to understand yourself, right? So I thought, <laughs> hey, this will help me to understand who I am as well. So, <clears throat> so that's how I got interested in psychology and ended up with a really outstanding mentor here at Texas State named uh, Dr. Shirley Ogletree. And so um, I just love Dr. Ogletree. And so she was someone who just 
took me under her wings and she was a wonderful mentor and encourager. And of course, I'm all the way in Texas because I'm here from Oklahoma. <laughs> and she was just um, someone who was an ally to me and she really cared about me and she cared about um, my studies and, and, and my career. So I got a lot of really good nurturing and mentoring and um, what I consider love from Dr. Ogletree. And so, um, yeah, that's why psychology became so compelling to me, understanding myself and others, <laughs> right? And then being in a space where I felt I belonged. Yeah, that intro to psychology class you mentioned seems to be th- probably the most effective recruitment tool, I think, <laughs> for psych majors. It's a, uh, I've talked to, I, for me, my role, I'm the liberal arts liaison, so mm-hmm. A lot of my students who uh, major in psychology, I'll ask them, well, you know, what got you interested? And it very often is, well, I took intro to psychology (laughs) and it blew my mind. (laughs) Yeah. And then that psychology of women, um, that psychology of women's class, that is so awesome too. Yeah. Well, one thing that you shared with us in prior in our production meeting was that you were a probation officer. You also worked for the Hayes... Hayes County uh, Women's Center. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. But also I'm curious what got you then into Texas State University? Yeah. Okay. So I worked at the Women's Center as a supervisor, a weekend supervisor. Hmm. And um, what I was able to do, so I started off as a volunteer and I would just come every Hmm. weekend and I would just volunteer And then I got this bright idea that I wanted to start coordinating outings and events for the women and the children. So I went to the I went to the director and I asked her if I said, would it be okay if I started coordinating some different outings and events? And then I went to different organizations and different uh, companies in the community and I would ask for movie tickets and just free stuff that we could do. And so that's how um, I just got so involved because I was like, well, they need something more right on the weekends. And this will be a time for them to have fun and do fun stuff because they had their groups during the week. The kids had school. But I said, you know, the weekends, they need to have something fun. And so um, and so because I just started coming up with all these things and then finally they were like, we need to hire this woman. Right. Because (laughs) she keeps coming up with really good stuff and for them to do. And so anyway, that's So I went from a volunteer, just showing up, doing stuff, coming up with new ideas. And and then I ended up in probation because they were starting what's called a district resource center, a tri-county district resource center, so that those who were on probation, who were going to be transitioning off of probation, um, would have a place to go or sort of a one-stop shop, right, where they could go the individuals who were on probation could go and we could work on goals, life skills. And so um, so as a probation officer, you're an officer of the court, which means you have to understand due process. And mm-hmm. right. And so um, you, you go through this process of, of certification and you take all these exams and anyway. But so um, uh, as an officer of the court, we could recommend that someone um, have their as part of their probationary period, that they could be assigned the district resource center. And so uh, the chief probation officer, who was the chief of the probation district, 
So um, he got this idea about starting a resource center. So what did I do? So I was like, I want to work at that resource center, right? Because I want to go out to the community and help them get um, job interviews. And I want to bring in people to do life skills classes and, and stuff like that. So that's what I started doing. Um, it's just going out into the community and asking people, you know, I want to set up interviews so they would just have an op opportunities to practice those kinds of skills and um, and just to do different things in the community, bringing in psychologists to do groups with them. And so that's how I got involved. And so that's how my time in probation sort of extended doing the kinds of things that I ended up doing, which were educational. And they were really focused on helping people to find a new path, right? A new path coming after having made a mistake, you know, finding a new path. And so that was very exciting to me. And so then my, that was sort of my segue into post-secondary because my first job was coordinator of student justice. Well, that's due process, right? So I had been, of course, I understood due process as an officer of the court, but I had also done all of these other things working with, with particularly with probationers or people on probation. Sometimes people think, oh my gosh, right? That you have to be a, a pretty tough person to do that. You, to some extent, what you have to do is you have to know how to set boundaries. That's really mm -hmm. important. And you also have to, also though, you have to be a compassion, compassionate person, person, right? So you have to be a compassionate boundary setter, but also someone who is willing to take risks on people okay. and, and right. And to want to make systems better. And so going into uh, post-secondary in um, my first job as the coordinator of student justice, what was that discipline? It's, it's right, but it's education because someone gets in trouble you're trying to find a way to help them find the educational takeaway. What is the yeah. life takeaway from this mistake? And then how do I move forward from there? So that was my first job um, in post-secondary, uh, which was at Texas State as coordinator of student justice. Then I went into, I was assistant dean of students. I was an ombudsperson for the students, right, which is advocating for folks whenever they have complaints and finding the win-wins, helping them find solutions and resolutions to that. I went into housing as well as uh, for two years. I did a two-year stint as the director of housing, interim, long-term interim director of housing. But um, And I did that because I went to my boss and I said, hey, whenever there's an opportunity, I want to work with bigger budgets, strategic planning, and lots of people. And so he said that the person left. He said, hey, you want to go over there as the interim? I said, yeah, send me over there. So, right. So that's how I ended up over there in housing. That's what incredible. Good training. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Just volunteering for stuff no one else wants to do, right? That's what I learned. That that's a it's a good takeaway. If there's something no one knows how to do, no one wants to do, step up and do it. You know, just volunteer for it. You gain new skills, you get new experiences, and then you're the in-house expert. <laughs> I so love true. that. So yeah. yeah. Well, and then it it's clearly something that you might be the only person doing, especially if no one else wants to do it. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so something we were we were talking about as a group is we we kind of anticipated that this is your calling just based on the way that you you live and you talk and all that. And so kind of taking maybe a, a, a uh, what am I looking for? Like a, like an existential step aside from post-secondary. 
we think that you probably would be doing this work no matter where you were at. So, okay, good. I'm glad. Yes, you said it. <laughs> yes. So when, when you think back to that time in your life, were there other career fields that you considered or, um, you know, did you, you know, could you, you know, if you, if we go to a parallel universe, could you see oh. doing this in a different, <laughs> you know, place and what would that might look like? Sure. So here's a little known fact about me. I'm an ordained minister. Oh my gosh. Awesome. <laughs> yes. I'm cool. an licensed and ordained minister. Yeah. And so, um, that's also something I was, uh, um, I did youth ministry. Um, that's something that I did. Um, <laughs> exactly. Woo, right. <laughs> and, um, I also co-pastored a church and that's something a lot of people don't know so about cool. me either. Wow. Yes. It was, it was a radically inclusive church affirming uh, ministry. And so that was really important to me as well that, um, because those are the values of my family, but those are also, you know, my values that we create inclusive spaces. And so spiritual communities, I really believe are spaces of healing and hope and community where we heal together, we hope together, right? And we're on kind of our life's adventure together. Mm. So probably if I wasn't here, I would probably be doing full-time ministry is, is probably something I would be doing because to me, that too is, is, is a similar kind of journey about mm. justice. It's a different kind of justice mm. in one sense, but it's still about the work of justice because that's about making people's lives better making people's lives better. So I would say in a parallel universe, that's probably what I would be doing. Wow. Oh. That's so cool. That makes me so happy. Cause I like, this probably won't make it on the podcast, but oft like I, I was a youth minister for 15 mm-hmm. years and mm-hmm. got out of it sort of for our work-life balance. That's why mm-hmm. I came here. Yeah. But I see all the parallels, right? Yes. And if, if I really had my heart's desire, I probably would go back to seminary. Mm-hmm. I just, can't, I can't get the push yet. So yeah. we'll see. Maybe. I yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So last little question in this section. Okay. So you um, received your doctor of philosophy in higher education administration, mm-hmm. University of Texas at Austin, 2002. Yeah. We, we read the excerpt of your dissertation and that was just profound. And I wish I could see the whole thing. So <laughs> oh my, my gosh, yeah. I don't even know where y'all us, got please. that from. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Um, but so once you got into, um, uh, post-secondary education as a field, uh, was that just a natural progression up that ladder? Um, or, you know, and slash like, you know, if you could, well, I mean, cause I, I'm so curious where you, do you see yourself sort of in the same vein in five to 10 years, or do you see yourself continuing up that, um, you know, volunteering for things that no one wants to do ladder? <laughs> Yeah, so I think because I'm someone who enjoys risk and adventure, um, and and the reason for that is it, it, because this is what I understand about a calling, and it's particularly a kind of calling when justice is central, is a core element of that. And that is, it's a calling to face your own fears, mm-hmm. quite frankly, right? And so it's moving towards things I would rather avoid but that ultimately require courage. And courage, I always like to, to remind people, courage is not the absence of fear, it's doing what we must in spite of our fear, right? Mm-hmm. So um, 
So for me, doing things that cause me a little bit of trepidation, right? Things that cause me a little bit of like, I don't know, you know, um, that feel a little bit scary to me is sort of the place I like to move towards because it ends up being the place where I have the most profound personal growth and development Mm. is when, when I face those things that I would prefer to avoid. And so usually I'm like, and then I'm just like, just do it. Just <laughs> go with it. Right. Just, just go all in. And so for me, I, I tend to pursue things that um, require me to face something that I'm a little bit afraid of. Mm. Right. Because that it's something my life is trying to teach me that I'm not wanting to learn. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. How, how do you do that? Sometimes it's so hard <laughs> to like knowing you need to do it or even that you should do it. How do you convince yourself to do it? <laughs> yeah. So sometimes um, it it takes me several starts. Okay. Uh, the momentum <laughs> and then, right. Um, sometimes my life doesn't give me a choice. Sometimes my life doesn't give me a choice. Um, so for instance, this recent position that I'm in, right, was not something I had planned. Um, it, it wasn't something um, that... I was, I sort of saw the handwriting on the walls, to be quite frank. I start, I started seeing it when, because here's the one thing about me, I'm very politically astute, okay? I, I had to learn that. I mean, I, I learned that as a child, right? Like I said, you're not going to integrate a school and not learn to start picking up on certain subtleties and, and, and certain kinds of things. And, and that's just a survival skill. And so, I'm a person that's very politically in tune to things. And so I'm, I'm able to sort of look at the board kind of like a chess game, right? Mm-hmm. I'm able to, to, to get a view and, and kind of figure out, oh, okay, that mm. king is moving towards that rook or whatever, right? So I'm able to sort of look and see what's happening um, and um, pay attention to what seems to be those signs. That's something that I'm always always that's sort of always as part of my consciousness I'm always doing that and so this new position that I'm currently in was not one that I was necessarily looking for but it was one look that was looking for me and mm-hmm. and it was one that um I could see was inevitable it okay. was gonna happen and so I will I will be very candid and say I resisted it. I resisted it. And I shared very candidly with um, the individuals who made that decision, all of my objections. Um, I was very forthright and direct about that. And so we were able to have a, a series of conversations, a series of conversations about it. And ultimately, um, I began to understand that it would be for the ultimate good of Texas State and for our students and for our community writ large, our community as a whole, because it would allow us to elevate at an institutional level diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, and, and that is essentially the work of educational justice. When you're in this space, it's educational justice, right? If you're mm-hmm. in a spiritual space, it's spiritual justice work that you're doing. So whatever the space is, but justice for me is at the heart of that, which is about equity and fairness and belonging and inclusivity. And so this would allow me the um, platform to be able to elevate this work and to have more of an influence and impact at a different level. And so, so, so me and my spiritual teacher sort of had a little bit of wrestling. And when I say my spiritual teacher, I mean at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And so we're having a little bit of a wrestling match. And ultimately I, I just had, um, eventually a peace just came upon me and, and within me. And I just felt settled into it, even though I was still, I felt like I was uncertain, but uncertainty is a part of, of doing anything new. Uncertainty is a part of risk. Uncertainty is, uh, is a part of transition. And so, um, so I felt like the, it called me, I resisted and eventually I responded and I came to terms with why this was um, the next step, the next move mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that a little bit. And that actually is kind of something we do want to know a little bit more about. And you did already kind of talk a little bit about your role as the assistant VP for Institutional Inclusive Excellence for <laughs> Student Initiatives. <laughs> um, hi. I've practiced that a few times. <laughs> you too, me too. I still practice it. Um, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that role and specifically how IIE benefits our students yeah. in the Texas State community? Mm-hmm. So institutional inclusive excellence, because it was the merging of several different areas, um, one of the ways that it benefits Texas State, and ultimately I'll talk about our students, is that when you pull together the leaders, right, leaders in different areas that are doing the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, then what you end up with is a pretty strong brain trust, right? You end up with a really good group of people coming together, sort of all focused on the same thing. And you're doing that now, not just at a divisional level, you're doing it now together as a team at an institutional level. And so um, the work that we're doing focuses not only on students, but faculty and staff and administration. So it focuses on the university as a whole. And that's really important when we espouse a commitment to something, then what this has done is it demonstrates that our commitment is not only in word, it's in deed, it's in resources, right? And that it is a core value. Whenever you elevate something, just like when we talk about being uh, becoming a research one, right? Because we hear that frequently and we put resources to that and we make it a part of sort of the core functionality of, of our community, then we know it's important. When the president, you know, when she, when she communicated to the community, here's what we're doing and here's why. Why when this comes when it comes from her, then people know, we all know it's important, but there's something about when she says it that we truly understand, oh, right, 
this matters. And then here's why this matters. Here's why this matters. And this matters for students because um, Texas State is evolving. We know that demographically, and we know that's just a demographic shift in the country, right, with regard to, to education. We know the future or the perpetuity of education, post-secondary education, has to do with students, right? There is no educational, right, there, this doesn't exist without students. And so um, our calling is to the success of students. And at an institution where there's a great deal of diversity, where we're continuing to evolve in our capacity to serve a broad array of diverse students, then it is incumbent upon us to have an infrastructure that supports that. So that means faculty and staff have to have the kind of training and understanding about the students that they are educating and serving. It means that as administrators, we have to understand the ways in which our system impacts, disproportionately impacts different groups. We understand impact by outcomes. Outcomes tell us the way a system impacts, right? And so understanding, looking at the data, looking at the outcomes, looking, and then also understanding the experiences of our students. And so um, for our students, the work that we're doing will have an impact that gets infused within all aspects of their educational experience so that it's in the classroom, it's within their co-curricular experience, it's within their living spaces, right? The, the spaces that we have um, sort of any, any sort of um, impact on like housing, residence life, things like that. So it would be infused in all aspects of their experience. And then that's preparing them to be what? To be more successful in a global and diverse society and workplace. With all this being said, Dr. Ben, what advice do you have for students who are going into 2021? How do they care for themselves, for others, while still trying to work towards change that really needs to happen? Yes, self-care, that is so important. And especially right now when we're experiencing um, <clears throat> excuse me, a global pandemic. It's so important that, that we make self-care a priority. I, it's something I make a priority. I get up about 4.30 in the morning. Um, and sometimes I'll let myself stay in the bed till five, but usually I wake <laughs> up, <laughs> I wake up about 4.30 in the morning because self-care, that's how, that's how much of a priority self-care is for me. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it has to be a priority is because you can't give what you don't have. Right. So when you're an empty vessel, you can't pour into anyone else. And it's important that we understand that, because when you're trying to give from a place of deficit, it's like writing a check with no money in the bank. Mm -hmm. Right. There's <laughs> fees associated with that. There's a cost <laughs> associated with that. Right. So self-care is something that is extremely important and has to be a priority. And self-care doesn't have to be anything elaborate. It can be simple things. So for me, self-care is I get up in the morning and I do journaling. I love to journal. That's really important to me to just connect to myself, my feelings, the things that I'm experiencing. I also meditate. That's very important to me as well. So I journal, I meditate, and because I'm a spiritual person, I also pray. So for me, that's my form of self-care. And then 
I work out, so I have to stretch. I love stretching. Stretching feels so good. So stretching, and then I'll do some exercise. So I alternate. My son is a trainer, so he puts together these cool little, you know, like five-minute workouts, and then I'll get on the treadmill. So I'll do free weights. I'll do the bands, all kind of fun stuff. And here's the thing. Consistency yields better results than intensity. The most important thing you can do when self doing self-care or any sort of exercise, exercise is a form of self-care, any sort of self-care is you will have better results if even if you do five minutes a day each day than you will if you say, I'm going to do an hour or two hours because you'll burn yourself out. So you have to know your bandwidth, right? Consistency. Start with something small, right? That that just replenishes you. It could be reading something. It could be um, they have some really great little meditation books, meditation apps. So many little things you can do like that. That's convenient. But just set aside that time for you in the morning, in the evening, during your lunch, even if it's five minutes, but just do it consistently. Hmm. Oh, that's such good advice. I think just even the the consistency piece, you know, because I think a lot of times people put pressure on themselves to, you know, set aside a whole hour where that's really not realistic for maybe more than one day a week. Right. And, and that's pretty hard. You know, you can't do one hour and then expect that to last you whole week. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But if you just do five minutes or 10 minutes each yeah. day, right, you can set that aside. You, you mm-hmm. can, you, that's realistic. And you can just work up and, and add to it and if, get up earlier if it starts feeling really good. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I started doing. But, um, and I also started doing that because I was a mom. And the only time that I had before I had to get up and get all the other, I'll do all the other stuff and um, was that early, early time. So my body just adjusted to it. Now, now my son's the trainer. So, yeah. (laughs) That's so cool. Like a personal trainer. Yeah, he does. Yeah. That's Uh awesome. man. Well, I think, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that whole journey. And I, you know, we have a lot of theories on career, but man, the, the idea of calling and really, you know, seeing, you know, being bothered by something and then, you know, connecting that with your vocation is so important. And mm-hmm. um, just the idea of you can't pour from an empty vessel is so quintessential right now. I mean, and it's, oh, that's always valid, but like, you know, I just, I think students, you know, I need to hear that, I, you know, mm-hmm. everybody needs to hear that. But so thank you so much for sharing all that with us. You're your excitement and your energy is so motivating and captivating. Um, So thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for choosing me. I feel honored. I'm so excited that that you all selected me to be a part of this awesome podcast program. Thank you so very much. A Walk Across Texas State is hosted by Bridget Sarbu and Tori Graham. Zachary Webb is our producer and editor. Music by Richard Hall. For free resources and additional information about our services, head over to careerservices.txstate.edu and follow us on social media at txstcareers. Don't forget to like and subscribe to hear new episodes every other Tuesday each semester. Thanks for listening and we will see you soon.